We don't win down here. We lose. You ready for that? Oh, you, th- oh, you were a post-millennialist. You thought we we're just going to go waltzing into the kingdom as you took over the world. Welcome to Nobody with a Bible. I'm Chief Nobody Brandon, and here we talk about all the things and use biblical discernment while doing so. So let's dig in, not using your feelings, but God's truth. What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. All right, we're going to talk about total depravity today, what it is, where it comes from. But first, I want to note that there's a lot of slander and accusations that are thrown around when we, whenever we talk about what's known as Calvinism and the five points of Calvinism, which T, the total depravity, is the T and TULIP, and those are the five points. It's total depravity, uh, the U-L-I-P, uh, the U would stand for unconditional election, limited atonement for L, irresistible grace for I, and perseverance of the saints for P. Um, We're going to go over each of those individually here, but today we're going to go over the first one. But as I said, I would not consider myself a Calvinist, Uh, but I have been in the theological circles that I run with. I have been labeled one, uh, a confused one at that. And that's fine. So I, I'm not going to seek to defend that. Rather, I will just go ahead and own it. And we're going to go over the five points. And I'm going to, I'm going to go over and see if this is doctrines of men, if this is a, a, a correct accusation, if this is something that um, you know is is only the doctrine of a 16th century French Protestant reformer. Um, then, then we'll see. Uh, but I, I think and I pray that when these things taken for their meaning, not, not, not the, the slanderous accusations that come from this, because most of the slanderous accusations come from what's known as hyper, or, or what it is, what they're describing is what's known as hyper-Calvinism. And sure, is with any doctrine or any teachings in, in Christianity, there's going to be an extreme version of it that doesn't represent everybody. But whenever we use this term, Calvinism, or whenever we talk about TULIP, instantly Calvinists get misrepresented and people don't listen to what they're actually saying. Um, mostly the, the opposite of Calvinism is what's known as Arminianism. Uh, they were, they are, jo- Joseph Arminius was also a, a theologian that, that strongly disagreed with, um, John Calvin on, on what he taught. And so he developed his own system that sets opposite of it. And we recognize both of these systems, what's known as Calvinism and what's known as Arminianism, we recognize both of these as Orthodox Christianity. We, we respect both of them and we say that they both have good points and they both systematically are not heretical. They're completely opposite of one another and they do not agree and they strongly, uh, violently in, in some points disagree. Um, but 
it's not heresy. And and they both are recognized as orthodox. But um, one thing that I've seen um, is, and, and I know, I, I've seen both sides, because I know Calvinists, there's, there's plenty of Calvinists that can tend to attack people and, and make people feel small, and they are better than everybody, and there's that. There's even a common, like, just kind of joke amongst that, and, and that's somewhat true. So that is, you know, true about them. They are not perfect at all. Um, but a lot of the things that gets thrown at them and, and, and you know, from the, from the side, as I said, as I mentioned, what's called Arminianism, a lot of the stuff that gets thrown is describing, as I said earlier, what's known as this hyper version of this that does not represent everybody. And they take these these five points that this system and and John Calvin is you know, but I guess it would probably help before I go any further to define what Calvin, uh, Calvinism is. I know I mentioned the names and probably use some words that people don't understand yet, but I'm going to try to just help you understand this as simply as possible. Calvinism is the theology or the teachings attributed to John Calvin. As I mentioned, he was a French Protestant reformer uh, in the 16th century. And so Calvinism also would refer to the doctrines and practices. That's important. Doctrines and practices derive from the works of what Calvin wrote uh, and his followers and, and, and um, those that would be characterized of what would be known as a quote-unquote reformed church. Okay, so that's what Calvinism is and and. Um, the topic that we're going to go over today, total depravity, is one phrase or one phase of the five points that summarize this. The, the five points didn't get popularized and, and systemized until uh, it, this, probably around the 60s is when it got popular. It was certainly around long before then, but it was when we attributed this tulip and, and, and summarized Calvin's teachings into these five points. So you can summarize all of these, these things into these five points, and it was tulip. And so um, these five points here are what's known as Calvinism. And... These five points in themselves, when understood correctly, are very biblical. And I believe to be, yes, 100% true. Now, I know there's, there's lots of disagreement on this and, and lots of accusations, as I said, from the other side, from what's known as the Arminian side. Not everybody would... I'm, I'm just summarizing that because, as I said, Joseph Arminius' theology was completely opposite of Calvin's. So we're talking about, I, I'm just summarizing, even if, forgive me, Arminians, even if you're or, or somebody that's not an Arminian and they say, no, I'm not an Arminian, what? don't label me like that. So I, I apologize for that. But basically, I'm using that term, this name, and that's, it's basically just lumping it together with anybody that opposes these five points. So that's what we're going to call Arminianism. And I know that there's plenty of forms that disagree with this. And so on these points, they're, as I said, completely opposite of one another on these things. 
And that's where both of these came from. And the accusations come from, um, from ex- as I said, extreme ideas and incorrect uh, interpretations of some things that even Calvin even taught. Now, me personally, I have only read course material on John Calvin. I have never never deeply studied Calvin's works or anything but if we if if I mean as far as my knowledge and everything that I have read and and it's not that I'm ignorant on the subject I mean I, I've listened to plenty of people that have read lots of Calvin I'm just saying that I personally have not read lots of Calvin but in my experience and what's obvious is you can take these five points and attribute this to what he taught now, he, he thought some incorrect ideas, and he had some wacko thoughts, and people certainly have brought these to their extremes, and we can't do that. We have to avoid doing that, and that's what I'm attempting to do here is because it's, it gets tiring um, to, to have to consistently defend something that just isn't true. It's misrepresented by your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I, you know, I don't understand it. Basically, I think that we could affirm many of the same things, so we should be able to work side by side whether we agree or not. So with that big intro, let's talk more about this, these five points. And the first point, as we're going to talk about today, is T for total depravity. Okay, so most people don't like this term. Some people will use a term like total inability or righteous incapability, or radical corruption, or something like that. Moral inability is another one. Um, but it's really important that it's it, it doesn't matter what a name we call it or whatever it is. It's the fact of this doctrine summarizes what the Bible teaches about the spiritual condition of the fallen man. And when we see this and understand this from Scripture, we see that this is very biblical. What does Scripture teach about man's spiritual state? What does Scripture teach? Well, it's very, very clear what Scripture teaches about these things. I mean, we take this all the way back to the Old Testament with Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. All, all. Jeremiah 17, 9 talks about the heart being deceitful and desperately wicked. This is man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. So in Genesis 3, 6, when the fall occurred and man disobeyed God and sin came into every single man and cursed every single man, this is what his condition became. His heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. There is nobody who is clean. Nobody who is clean before the Lord. Okay, we know Psalms 51.5 tells us that David says that he was 
brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So we see that this is passed down from person to person. Okay, we, we know that, that, that we are wicked from the womb. Psalm 58.3 And I think probably the most clear scripture if out of uh, uh, out of many would be Ephesians chapter 2 when Paul explains clearly what man's condition is what our condition is our condition is Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all, highlight, underline, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. These are the desires of the body and the mind and were, nat and were by nature, by our very nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Completely spiritually dead completely dead all man's deeds everything that he does because of this fall is completely and utterly depraved all of his works are filthy rags Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have fallen away together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one so when we look at total depravity we see that this is a completely biblical idea just based off of these few verses that we went over is this man's doctrine man's teaching and traditions of men no, absolutely not. We are absolutely born spiritually dead. We don't understand the curse of sin and the fall and, and the fact that that completely removed us from a holy and righteous God. We are dead in our transgressions. It's clear that we are held captive by our sins. And we know that we will 
not seek after God. As it is written, no one understands, no one seeks for God. No one looks for God. So by nature, we will always disobey God. It's funny because we don't think, we, we read at the story of Adam and Eve and we scoff and we go, man, I'm glad I'm not like her. You would have done the same thing. You might as well look in a mirror. You are looking in a mirror when you're reading that. Woman, you are a sinner. Man, you are a sinner. We are all sinners. We are all held captive because of this. And all of us would have done the same thing 6,000 years ago. None of us would have done anything differently. And man's natural because of a result of this now man's natural desire is going to be to run after sin and run away from god he wants to hide himself he wants to be left to his own his own darkness we have to understand how sinful man is and that's where the term total depravity comes in man is totally depraved completely and utterly depraved means morally corrupt wicked wicked look at the things that man does to one another look at murder we kill what the Lord has breathed into. The Lord has given the breath of life, yet we end that, and we end that willingly, and we make up excuses for it. We are disgusting, completely morally corrupt, wicked, incapable of doing nothing good. We're capable of doing nothing good. We're completely incapable. The only good in us is Christ. If we are in him. Now, does that mean that since we are desperately wicked and morally corrupt, does that mean that we can't do good things? No, absolutely not. There's still some sense of God's goodness in the world. God is still present in the world. And there's a sense of common mercy and grace that's given to all men in the way that, you know, we don't have every single we, person we walk by, we're stabbing each other in the throats and, and hate each other. No, we, the Lord has given us government to restrain evil, to be able to restrain these things. But that's what the Lord's doing <laughs> and, and that that's happening. If the Lord completely pulled out, it would be, it would be awful. <laughs> I mean, we would, none of us would be left. Nobody would be left. We would kill ourselves so quickly. 
we'd kill ourselves off. There would be nobody left. None. So we're still capable of doing good things. And people who don't even follow the Lord are capable of doing good things. But just because we're capable of that, because God created us for his glory and we're capable of that, that doesn't identify our spiritual state. We are separated from the Lord. While we are in this earthly tent that we're groaning in, we are away from the Lord. We desire to be with the Lord, those of us who know Christ. But we are down here separated from Christ because of our sin. And it isn't until we are made new again that we were able to, to even inherit these things, to even be, to even be around him. So there's a lot of misconceptions. People will say, well, see, there's good in the world, so people aren't inherently bad. It's completely incorrect. We're, we're completely and totally utterly deprived because of Genesis 3. Because the fall of man. And every single one of us falls short to the glory of God. We are all sinners. And the extent of which is something that you have to ask yourself. Christ says, by a thought, we are condemned. Have you gotten angry at somebody? sinfully angry at somebody guess what you're a murderer have you thought about sexual immorality guess what you're sexually immoral that's helpless that's what led the disciples to ask the question lord who can be saved how could anybody be saved nobody can exactly exactly because we're completely and utterly and totally depraved. This is not some doctrine of men. This is not human tradition. This is a very biblical concept. Very biblical. And there's a lot of misunderstanding around it. But I think we do best to not always assume the extremes and understand and take a look at things and inspect them and see if they are biblical instead of just spouting off and accusing or thinking that we know better remember your 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 tendency in the flesh is going to be to rebel against this and to rebel against God. So we have to we have to take that into account to make sure we're not being biased or we're not being narrow minded or you know, and God forbid we're not being biblical. So that is the T of to a quick summary of the T in total depravity. And clearly this is a biblical concept. This is not something that is just cooked up by a 16th century French reformer. So 
I would pray that all of you would go to the Lord. If you don't understand what this means, uh, I would pray that you ask to go to the Lord and, and just pray that he opens your heart to understanding. Because once you understand the depth of what your spiritual condition truly is and what the Lord has given to you, it's an unexpressible joy. So until next time, which next time we will go over uh, the you, which is unconditional election, and find out if that is a tradition of men or if that's biblical. On the day of judgment, do not, do not fear for the atheist so much, the thief, the murderer. If you want to be afraid for someone on the day of judgment, be afraid for those who carried the title pastor. Let me give you an example. I gave this example last night. Let's say that a king had a bride. He loved her. He dressed her in white. She was pure and precious to him. And the people admired her for her, for her virtue, for her merit. And the king has to go on a long journey. And so he, he uh, tells his steward, he calls his steward in and he says, here are the directions and you are to care for my bride. You do not deviate from this, not, not one jot or tittle. And when I come back, you'll be rewarded. Or I'll come back and you will be severely punished. Keep this book, these instructions with regard to her. Well, after a few years, this steward realizes that the people are losing their loyalty in the king. And they're no longer concerned about the bride because, well, she's just prudish. She's old-fashioned. So he takes her and dresses, takes off her beautiful white garment, and replaces it with something really sensual, paints her face like a prostitute, and then marches her up and down the kingdom and uses this new look to attract carnal men back into the kingdom. When that king comes back, there, there are no words to describe what he will do to that steward. And when Jesus Christ comes back, there are no words to describe what he will do to many of these men who call themselves pastors who have done to his bride exactly what the steward did in that parable.